morning. Hey, look at that. I got the mic on. Starting good. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're continuing in our, our study. Uh, but first, the joke of the day. I get, I get a little email. It's, it's got the joke of the day in it. I thought today's was pretty, pretty good. Dr. P's not here, so this was for him. But uh, what do dentists call x-rays? Toothpicks. Uh, all right. So that didn't go over so well. <laughs> anyway, I thought it was funny. Gave me a laugh this morning. But uh, so a couple weeks ago, we started. We started in our series on the pastoral epistles that will lead us through the three letters from Paul to Timothy and Titus. Two to Timothy, and the final one to Titus. And over the last handful of weeks, we had the break for homecoming. There, we have been asked the question: What is to be our guide in faith and practice? More specifically, what is to be the guide for our church? Because this book of 1 Timothy is written so that, and this has been the, the theme verse for this whole book, and it's actually in our text for today, it's so that we may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So, the question was asked, is it traditions? Is that how we're to behave? Is that how we've always done things? It was how I was taught or raised. How I was taught or raised is probably different than how you were taught or raised, so which is it? Is, is it the church constitution? Christians seeking to honor and glorify God in their worship wrote it, right? They were seeking to honor and glorify God as they wrote that. And we always come back to, it needs to be the word of God, the scriptures. And we've gone through some passages that are clear on some issues that the church in America has gotten terribly wrong or is not following. And we've also seen where our ch own church constitution or the way we do things through our practice does not align with what we see in scripture. So that brings us today to today's passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll be starting in verse 14. And you can take a deep breath, right? As Pastor Michael says, breathe, right? I'll not be reading any parts of our church constitution this morning. I'll let Pastor Michael keep being the target of the, what? You sure? And, uh, but if you would, read with me here as we read through verse 5 of chapter 4. Starting at chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So we're going to look at four different points this morning through this passage. First three being from chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. But number one is the purpose. Paul's giving us the purpose here, not only of this letter, but of his ministry in a whole, but, but specifically here in this letter to Timothy of how we ought to act in the household of God. The household of God. To start with, Paul wanted to visit. He wanted to visit where Timothy is in Ephesus. He had been in Ephesus before, spending considerable time there in ministry and leading the church, and he wanted to teach them more. He wanted to lead them more. 
He loved them. He desired to be back with them. But he anticipated that he may not visit again. And so he wanted to prepare Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, he anticipated that delay, you may know how one ought to live in the household of God, which is the church. He wanted to prepare Timothy. He wanted the church to be healthy. He loved the church there in Ephesus. He loved the church, the body of Christ. He wanted them to know how they ought to act. He wanted them to know how to live. And how is a believer to behave in the household of God? What things are they to do? Well, if you look back at chapter 1 and verse 3, starting in verse 3, the second part of it, it says, may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Actually, you start reading through the book of 1 Timothy and you start seeing these things all over the place. I command these things. I urge you to do these things. These things. Take some time this week, if you haven't already, go through and highlight with one color or circle with a pen all the places that you see these things. Start seeing the different things that he desires for the church to do, for how they behave. These are the things that Paul wanted the believers to know so that they could behave in the household of God. This purpose is the pivoting point in the book. And Paul starts out with this greeting to Timothy and moves right into teaching doctrine, including that Christ came to save sinners. Why did God come? Why did he send his son? To save sinners. He outlines the offices of the church and the qualifications for them. And then he pauses here to explain why he is writing. And he says, so you may know how you should be acting in the family of God. That's the EASD, the Infant of Health Standard Version. Got to add the A in there. How we should be acting in the family of God. So what is the family of God? Or the household of God that's translated here. And that brings us to our next point. So the purpose we saw here. But next we see the church. And what it is. And wow, what a rich testimony of what the church is we see here. Well, the household of God is not just a building, but the people. And in context, we see that this is, this being properly translated is the family of God or the household. Not the structure, but the people. And some translations might say the house of God. But if you look back just in this passage, in chapter 4, when talking about uh, elders, overseers, he must manage his own household well. And then in verse 5, it talks again about his household. When we get to deacons in verse 12, again, managing their household well. In context, he's talking about the people here. Not the building, not this room, not this property, but those that are in the church, the people, the family of God. So who is the church made up of? In the chapter before, in Ephesians chapter 2, the chapter before Grace and Allen read for us this morning, Chapter 2, verse 19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And here Paul is speaking to Gentiles, those that are not Jews. So probably most of us in here, for me, that's me. We, We are members of the household of God. But who is that? Those who have accepted Christ as their Savior. Those who have received the gift of salvation. We have been made members of God's family. So who is the church made up of? It's made up of the people. But it's not just an assembly, but it's the assembly, the people of God, of a living God. Do you see that, see that phrase there? If I delay to you that you may know how you ought to believe, behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. There's some descriptors here of what the church is. Church is gathering the family of God, but it's 
church of a living God. And as the church, we belong to the maker of heaven and earth. A living God, not a dead God. One commentator pointed out the rich Old Testament heritage, the living God. This is in plain contrast to all the other gods that were around or that are around, right? They're dead. They're just idols. They're lifeless. They're not living. The Israelites experienced the living God when they were taken out of Egypt, led in the desert by the pillar of fire at night and cloud by day. They experienced the presence of God at the tabernacle or the temple as he lived amongst them. But then where is the living God today? Where is he? He's everywhere. He's omnipresent, but he is with us. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 says, For we are the temple of the living God. So if we are a believer, if we have accepted Christ our Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and we are the temple of a living God. Ephesians chapter 2, going back to that passage just before the chapter that, that Grace read for us. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is not just something that's true when we're here together, right? But it's something that's true every day of the week. We are indwelt by the Spirit, right? And so if he is truly the living God, sometimes we forget that and we remember that when we come together and we worship the living God and then we go out from here and we fail to remember that in all of our things that are going on. If he is with us, he's a living God that we are serving. And he is a living God. And the next description here of the church is that it's the pillar and the buttress of truth. Paul's imagery may have referred to the magnificent temple of Diana or Artemis in Ephesus, which, according to historians, was supported by 127 gold-plated marble pillars. One commentator wrote it this way, the word translated buttress appears only here in the New Testament and denotes the foundation on which a building rests. So we have the imagery of a pillar and a foundation. buttress a foundation that stands against storms something that is grounded so that when a storm comes it is not destroyed a strong foundation not a weak one when we go to outer banks for vacation that we get there and there's usually another house going up right if you guys have ever been there there's always another house being built and my wife always makes a comment of how wimpy they look like, there's just some sticks put together. And she grew up in South America where everything was built with cinder blocks, and it's a lot stronger. And so when storms come, like a hurricane, these houses are oftentimes demolished. They don't have that super strong foundation. But the foundation of the church is what? We'll get there in a second. But it has a strong foundation so that it can stand against storms. Then it is a pillar. And what do pillars do? Well, one, they're, they're structurally to hold the roof up, right? But they also do what? They put that building high. They put something up where it can be seen. If you just have a foundation, you miss it, right? But if it's on pillars, it's seen for all. So the foundation and the holding up of truth, the pillar and buttress of truth. What is the truth? Well, first, the truth is its foundation and what it stands for. Ephesians 2, verse 20, talks about the apostles and Christ being the foundation of the church. 
And so then what is the foundation that the church is built on if it's truth? It's the truth that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The cornerstone of the church is what Christ did for the church. By coming to this earth, living a perfect life, sinless life, dying on the cross, rising again, making a way for us to have a restored relationship with God. The sacrifice of Christ is the truth, the foundation of the church. So Paul is writing that the church is to stand fast to the truth that it is built on Christ. And that it is to share that truth to the word, world. If it's a pillar, if it's holding it high, we need to hold that truth high. Now, storms will come. And we're going to see that in just the next chapter as things come that attack that truth. And if its foundation is truth, and its, its foundation stands for truth, then it withholds and stands fast against the wrong, the evil. It is the pillar and buttress of truth. So the church, made up of the household, the family of God, those who have called on the Lord to be their Savior, accepted Christ as Savior, is the assembly of a living God, not a dead God. Not someone that just, not some inanimate object, but a true living God dwells amongst us. It's a pillar and a buttress of truth. Truth, what is that truth? We have to remember that the truth that Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose again, conquering death. So, how does the church stand for truth? Why does it stand for truth? And we'll get to these questions, but first I want us to look at what is that truth a little more fully. And so we've seen Paul is writing what the church is, and now we see the mystery. Because here we go, we're going to get into that truth a little bit deeper. Get into that truth a little bit deeper. So what is the mystery? We're going to read verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now this word mystery has come up before already in our, in our passage, right? As you look back up, we see that, sorry, let me find it here. I didn't highlight it. They must, verse 9, they must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. So here we go, mystery again. What is the mystery of godliness? The mystery of godliness, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. First, I want us to look at that he was manifested in the flesh. He was revealed to us. It says he, in some translations, it might say God was manifested. But in either case, the reference is clearly to Christ here, who manifested the invisible God to mankind. Jesus Christ was God. First John, or John 1, 1 says that in the beginning was God. Or in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, the Word, is God. He was God in flesh. He's flesh like you, can, you and me, but not sinful flesh, perfect flesh. We saw him. We could touch him. He was seen by humans. The invisible God made visible. But then he was vindicated by the Spirit. The work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, affirming Christ as God. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, we see at Jesus' baptism that the Spirit ascended upon him, affirming him. In Romans 1, 4 and 8, 11, the Spirit affirms Christ through the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ, he is affirmed. The Spirit affirmed and verified and vindicated Jesus. And we see these first two working in concert with each other 
And, and we see that they, and we'll see that through the next four, but we see a, a contrast here, actually, as they manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, not just here on earth, but in heaven. Not just the physical, but the spiritual realm. In Ephesians chapter 3, which was our passage read for us just a little bit ago, in verse 9 and 10 it says, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages, who created all things. We've seen what the mystery is. The salvation message. But it was to bring what is light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages, in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Not just here on earth, but in heavenly places. The physical, the spiritual. And we're going to see this through the next couple as it bounces back and forth as we move through these. So the first, first couplet is the revelation of Christ, both to man and through the Spirit, physical and spiritual. And the second one is the witness of Christ. And we see this seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. What do we mean by seen by the angels? Well, they announced his birth. Luke chapter 2, we read about that. They announced his resurrection. When the women go to the garden to see, see his body, they get there, and there's an angel that asks, <laughs> that says, he's not here, he's risen. They announced his resurrection, they witnessed it. They attended to him. We read throughout the scriptures, they attend to him. And they also attested his ascension. They witnessed him going to heaven. On the spiritual side, the angels were seen by angels, confirmed by angels. But at the same time, he was proclaimed among the nations. This is seen from Paul himself, right, as he goes throughout the whole known world preaching the gospel until even today. We prayed this morning for, the, uh, <coughs> for our missionaries in England, Campbell, not Campbell's, uh, that's deep talk, Wilson's, his Annalise Wilson. Pray for the Wilson's in England. We have missionaries that are getting ready to go to Togo and Africa. We have missionaries in El Talar, Argentina, in Logan, Utah, as they proclaim the gospel among all nations. He was seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations. His witness is to all the earth and heaven, to all, who he is and what he has done. The third couplet we see, the third group here, is the treatment he was given, or his reception says believed on in the world taken up in glory believed on in the world he is the savior of the world from the early church in jerusalem until now people are believing on his name and being saved around the world it says taken up in glory one commentator writes christ's ascension and exaltation showed that the father was pleased with him and accepted his work wholly he's reigning with god the father as king over all the universe dying on the cross, rising from the grave. He ascended to the Father. The Father accepted his atoning work for you and I. He was taken up in the glory. So we look at these first three verses here and we see the purpose, the church, and the mystery. As we move into chapter 4 and 5, or chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, we see the approaching apostasy that Paul warns of. And what is apostasy? It's the abandonment of faith. And Paul gives them two instructions here, gives Timothy two instructions here as he talks about this coming apostasy. One, detect error. Number two, do things with thanksgiving and prayer. 
But in detecting error, in verses 1 through the first part of 3, let's read together. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence for food. Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, expressly, he is given these words to say, and latter times, later times, what does later times mean? Well, whew, Timothy didn't have to worry about this, but are we in the later times? No. As we read through scripture, Paul uses this term actually multiple times, and then he immediately delves into like, hey, watch for this right now. So he's talking about the later times. The church is in the later times. And Jude, chapter 1, verse 4 says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God and sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude is saying this stuff is happening now, at the time that Jude is written. So the later times are are now. They're not some distant future. (laughs) They're happening. And so what's going to happen? First, they will depart from the faith. They will depart from the faith. How will they do this? How will they depart from the faith? Well, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. The devoting that we're supposed to place to God, the devotion that we make to our faith, they were not doing that. They were doing the exact opposite. They were devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. What are these deceitful spirits? Supernatural? Yes. But then also the teaching of demons. Devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. People were teaching things that were completely contrary to who God was, what he does. Another thing that they were devoting themselves to or departing from the faith in a sense was insincerity of liars. As we read that phrase, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, there is a distinct contrast between conscience up above. If we move back up <clears throat> to that verse I read earlier, verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. We have a distinct contrast here between the clear conscience of someone who holds the gospel and a seared conscience of someone who deceives and leads away from who God is. Departing from the faith. They also forbid marriage and the abstinence of food. Now, I think we can write quick easily understand that marriage is not wrong and that we need food to live. So if you completely abstain from food, (laughs) you're not going to live. That can't be right. But what they had been taught by Paul himself was that marriage was, had rules, was defined as to what marriage was. And outside of the definition of biblical marriage, it's wrong. And they took it too far. They perverted it. And then when it comes to abstaining from food, are we commanded to fast? We're told to fast. So again, perverting it, taking it too far. And so they forbid marriage and the abstinence of food. All of these things are contrary to God's word as we see through them. What are we to be devoting ourselves to? Not deceitful spirits, not 
the teaching of demons, not to the sincerity of liars, but to the things of God, to the gospel message, the mystery that we just saw in chapter 3. So how do you combat approaching apostasy with thanksgiving and prayer? Second half of verse 3, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Received with thanksgiving by those that know the truth. Know the truth is important. And what is the truth? The things that God has taught. So, for example, just going back up, biblical marriage and biblical fasting. Knowing the truth, they are good. They are to be received with thanksgiving in the way in which God created them. God created all things. It says, for everything created by God is good. God created all things perfect. But through the fall, things have been corrupted. But in the state in which God created them, they are perfect. And as we seek to honor God and use them in the way in which he created, they are good. And then prayer. Prayer is something that comes up again and again in Paul's writing. It's come up again here. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. In verse 8 of chapter 2, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Prayer, prayer. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Prayer is our way to seek God to know truth and ask for truth. We pray to God, asking him to help us understand what is the truth. What is truth that he has designed and defined as he has created the world? The truth of who Christ is and what the gospel is. And so we see the purpose of his letter, the purpose being that we know how to behave in the church. And what is the church? The mystery. What is that mystery? That Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He is God. We see the approaching apostasy that Paul warns of. I think of the story of Pilgrim's Progress. Any of you guys read Pilgrim's Progress? Story of Christian as he travels on his way to the celestial city. He's making his way. And along the way, he meets some different people. And he's, he's joined at one point in his journey uh, as he's coming to the town of Vanity by a friend named Faithful. And everybody, all travelers, must pass through this town of Vanity. And it has a fair that runs all year long. Vanity Fair. And he and his traveling partner, Faithful, they stick out. They're wearing different clothes. They talk different in the story. And they're arrested because they talk about being for Christ and what is true. And ultimately, through the trial, Faithful is put to death. And he immediately makes his way to the celestial city. And Christian escapes prison and continues on his way to the celestial city. He was on his way there, but there were distractions along the way. In Vanity Fair, there were those that were seeking to deceive, to turn him away, to following after things that were not of God. In Sunday school for youth group, the 6th to 12th grade kids, we've been watching a series that's starting out in the book of Acts, and it's been talking about the way. In, in Acts, we see this throughout. People who are following after Christ are a part of the way. Paul refers to it at different times, that he is part of the way. And where do they get this from? They probably get it from, the, from Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John chapter 14. 
So what is the way in which we are to travel? Christian was on the way serving God, following after on his way to Celestial City. The way is also a theme we see in Proverbs. The way of the wise, the way of the fool. The one who seeks after God, the one who seeks after the things of this world. So how do we stay in the way? How do we focus on what is truth and what God desires of us? First, you have to be a follower of the way. Are you a member of the family of God? Are you a part of his church? Have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you made him Lord of your life? If you haven't, talk to myself or Pastor Michael or someone that you came with today. The second is that question we've been continuing to ask. Is the word of God, the, the Bible, our guide to faith and practice? Paul states in this passage clearly that these instructions are how a Christian is to behave in the family of God. Are we following it? Are we following it? And as we look at this mystery, we also see the supremacy of Christ. In verse 16, we see how Christ is supreme, not just on this earth, but in all realms, in the spiritual realm, physical and spiritual. He is attested to as God, as the Savior. So the question is, are we making him supreme in our life? Are we seeking to honor and glorify him with all that we do? Are we seeking to honor and glorify him with, him with our life as we walk in to church on Sunday morning and worship with our family? Fourth, are we standing for truth? The church is to be the pillar and buttress of truth. Are we holding fast in it? Is truth grounding us and creating our foundation? Are we holding it high, putting it on pillars for all to see? Do others see us as a beacon of truth, God's truth? And fifth, thanksgiving and prayer. Are we thankful and prayerful? What does it look like to be thankful and prayerful for the truth that God has given us? Thankful that we have his word, that we can see it. We have other believers who can help point us to that truth. Thankful for the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and gives us that truth. And are we prayerful people? Are we people who pray that God would help us understand what he desires for us? So the challenge for us this morning as we read through these verses is to seek to understand what is this mystery of godliness, that Jesus Christ is God, he's our Savior, that we watch, that we guard against the distractions, the deceitfulness that may come in, that we are warned and detect error as it comes so that we can honor and glorify God with our lives. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, we come to you this morning as we sang to you, worshiped you with our voices, the reading of your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand who you are, what you have done, what truth is, God, I pray that as we seek to be a church that is grounded in truth, built on the cornerstone of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would honor you by spreading that truth to the world, the truth of the gospel, the truth of 
your great love for us in sending your son to die for us. God, I pray that you would expand our understanding of who you are and what you have done for us. I pray that we would have the wisdom to guard against those that would deceive and pervert the truth within the church and within our world. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.